Well, I'm sure if you've been keeping up on the news, <coughs> you have been aware of the uh, referendum in Scotland seeking to divide from the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom, of course, is made up of four countries, England, Wales, Scotland, and, and Northern um, Ireland. And after 307 years, there was a possibility that this kingdom would be divided by democratic vote. Um, it was a historic moment and uh, one that I was really interested because they were uncertain as to, the, uh, as to what would happen if, in fact, there was this split. And, uh, but but in, in light, as, as I was reading that and studying this passage about Jesus bringing a radically unique kingdom, a kingdom that, that is so different than the kingdoms of men and women. And uh, th- this, as we've been reading through Matthew, you know, in the first 10 chapters, we've just seen over and over, Matthew kind of declared this identity of Jesus and, and the teachings of Jesus and the power of Jesus. And then, then in these last couple of chapters, we've looked at the conflict or, or the, the, um, yeah, the conflict, the reception of this coming kingdom. And there's been this antagonism that we've seen, particularly in chapter 12, and it's going to continue. And so I just want to kind of lay out four simple thoughts about the nature of this kingdom and see how it accords with your understanding. When I talk about the kingdom of God, I'm not talking about a faraway place or a realm or or some sort of distant location. I'm talking about the faith that we embrace. It would be synonymous with the kingdom. That the Christian is part of this kingdom, and so the Christian's life looks like a kingdom life. And there's four things you're going to see. First, that the kingdom is, is given to the broken and the needy. So the kingdom isn't for the polished and the pure, but for the broken and the sinners. Secondly, you're going to see that the kingdom is not received by all well. The kingdom will be rejected by many. This kingdom, though, will come with a power, a unique power, that there's going to be a change, a reordering of those in the kingdom. And then last, the kingdom comes with demands. There's no doubt about that. There are certain demands, and Jesus is going to bring them to us in the form of warning. So if you turn with me to Matthew chapter 12, I'm going to read 22 all the way through 37. 22 through 37. This is book of Matthew chapter 12. And this is really a, it's a cosmic struggle of kingdoms. So, so hope you hear this with, with um, excitement. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but 
the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. So I'll try to make sense of all this. The first thing I want to just move you to is that this kingdom is uniquely given to those who are broken, the disenfranchised, the weak, the ones that we may turn aside from. And you see that right in verse 22. It says, Then a demon-oppressed man was, who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. This is the miracle. It's a miracle story. Matthew is continuing to record Jesus' ministry of preaching and teaching. And here, a man is brought to him. Now, when you see this idea of this man, he's blind and mute. So he's blind. His world is one of darkness. Now, you can imagine the trial of a world of darkness. You never see the glory of God expressed in creation. You never see a smile on your child's face. You never know the the nuances and, and, and the facial expressions of those that you love most. I mean, it would be very difficult. But then add to that the fact that the man is mute. He can't speak. His tongue is chained to his mouth can't say, I love you. He can't say, help. He can't say, I'm hungry. Can you imagine? And then pile on that, that he's oppressed. Now, of course, we don't use the expression demon possession because possession indicates ownership. Only God owns all things because only God is the creator. But he's oppressed, or the Greek word can be translated demonized. In other words, he's thoroughly dominated by darkness. That's a situation that is brought to Jesus. This man is blind, and he is mute, and he's demon-oppressed. And so what does Jesus do to this man? Well, it's interesting. Note the brevity with how Matthew handles it. And Jesus healed him. That's all. And Jesus healed him. You know, it's interesting with Jesus. Whenever he performs miracles, there's not any, there is no self-promotion. Very little fanfare. He just healed him. You know, this one that is gentle, that a bruised reed he won't break, he just heals him. He brings sight to the man's eyes. He gives uh, speech to the man's tongue. And he gives freedom from the darkness that he's bound in. This is a picture of the kingdom coming. This is a reversal of darkness and brokenness. This is, this is what Jesus has come to do to bring the kingdom to the broken. See, when we look at the world, we often say, what is the plight of man? And we think, well, there's a lot of, you know, there's poor, lack of clean water. There is issues of uh, poor education, lack of security within the nation, not a lot of economic opportunities. And those, no doubt, are difficult situations. And Jesus attends to the physical. But this is pointing to something greater. The physical problems, the maladies this man's face, this man faces, it's a metaphor for what we all face. 
There is no one on this earth that can find God by sight or can, can mouth praises to God apart from his move towards us. All of us are fast bound in the nature of sin. We're, we're all in the kingdom of darkness. That's the idea of depravity, that all of us have been brought forth in sin and we're bound in sin. You know, the great hymn, And Can It Be, uh, by, by John Wesley, Charles was, I forget which one, but, but he's, the, the, the line that grabs me is, Long my spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Even Wesley would say, my sin was bound. And so here comes Jesus to deliver us. In fact, you see this in Colossians chapter 1, where he says that, Give thanks to the Father. He has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the children of light. He has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the Son that he loves, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. So Jesus is bringing a kingdom for the broken. Do you see yourself in this light? Did you see yourself? Would you ever imagine yourself to be part of this metaphor of being blind and being mute and being oppressed, being fast bound? See, many of us, I think, in Christianity, Jesus is an additive to our life to make it better. We don't see ourselves in the absolute darkness of being in this kingdom of darkness. We don't see it that way. We just see him kind of helping us in life. Scriptures paint a different picture. But do you also not just see the plate of man, but the compassion of Jesus? Hold him in contrast with the Pharisees. These men with their shriveled hearts have no compassion for this man. Jesus heals him, and they move right on the offensive, as we're going to see. And yet Jesus Christ exercises this deep compassion. Why? Because he doesn't break the bruised reed. He doesn't quench the smoldering wick. He's gentle and kind to, to draw us. I mean, do you see, if you're a Christian here today, do you appeal to Jesus, understanding his gentleness and sweetness? Perhaps you are kind of locked right now. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's food. Maybe it's just a marital conflict that you see no end. You almost feel fast bound in the struggle. Do you see that Jesus Christ is sufficient for you? Do you see that the kingdom is for you? Even as a Christian, even if you're struggling in the midst of sin, you're fast bound in lust to appeal to him that he's the one that brings light to the eyes. He's the one that brings words to the mouth. He's the one that brings freedom to the soul. Appeal to him. Appeal, run to him. He says, come to me, go to him. For the non-Christian here, um, there isn't something you have to do to move towards Christ. You know, the song that we sing on a regular basis is, Come Ye Sinners. I love this one line. It says, the only thing he requires is that we feel our need for him. To feel you need. If you sense the need, then Jesus bringing this kingdom, unlike the kingdoms of this world, unlike the kingdoms of Satan, we just need to feel our need. If you're not a Christian and you feel your need, that is the evidence that he is already working in you, drawing you to himself. So that's the first thing. It's a simple thing. But this kingdom is for the broken. That's why he picked what would be the loser of the group. The blind, he's mute, and on top of the whole thing, he's oppressed by a demon. And yet Jesus goes after him. To the sick he goes. 
not to the healthy. But the second thing we see about the glory of this kingdom is that it's not fully embraced. I mean, after a miracle like that, you would think they'd be lining up to get in the kingdom. Not so. In fact, look at the response in 23 and 24. You, you see kind of a doubting response in 23. It says, all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Now, that word amazed is only used one time in Matthew. When something is used one time in Matthew, or one time in any book, you want to pay attention to it. The Greek word means literally beside himself, beside themselves. And you can imagine he's mute, he's, he's blind, and he's oppressed, and now he's healed, he's talking, he's praising God, he's looking around, he's free in his spirit to worship God. They were amazed. And they're asking this question, saying, can this be the son of David? Now, remember, when you see son of David, you think Old Testament. You think King David, and King David had a special relationship with God, and God appeared to David and said, you're going to have a son, and this son is going to, he's going to have an eternal kingdom. So David knew that he would have a son that would not be just this simple natural son. He was going to somehow be dynamically different than just the other sons that he had, because he would have an eternal kingdom, which would mean he had to be eternal. And so David understood he would have a son that would come from God that would lead an eternal kingdom. So they were looking for a deliverer. And they're saying, can this be the son of David? And then, can this really be it? Now, Matthew inserts a little Greek word in there that, that gives us the idea that the expected answer was negative. In other words, can this really be the son of David? Or it kind of could be translated, this can't be the son of David. There's a certain negativity, so there's a certain doubtfulness among the people. They're saying, can this be the son of David? I don't really think so. And so you have this group here that is doubting. They're confused, perhaps. Maybe some of them were hopeful. Many of them were doubtful and confused. But look at the other reaction in verse 24. They were not doubtful. They were convinced he was not the son of David. In fact, they say he is doing these things by the parabelzebul. Now, remember this. The Pharisees disbelieved Jesus was the son of David, the son of God. But do you notice they don't disbelieve the miracle? That's the one interesting thing about the miracles of Jesus. Even the people that don't believe in Jesus don't question the veracity of the miracle, the power of the miracle. I mean, Jesus' miracles had this self-authenticating nature to them. Nobody doubted him. Not like many of today's self-professed faith healers where their miracles are often leaving you, hmm, I don't really know. I wish a doctor would kind of investigate this. I'm not saying that God doesn't heal today. We believe he does. But in terms of these people that have these self-proclaimed ministries, their healings are often suspect. Not so with Jesus. Not so. So these Pharisees obviously couldn't take issue with the reality of the miracle. So would they take issue with the source of the power for the miracle? And they say that he's done this through the power of Beelzebul. Beelzebul is a difficult word to translate. It, it can literally mean the Lord of the flies. And not any fly, the flies around the dung of an animal. So the expression Beelzebul was a real term of derision that the Jews would kind of use against the pagan gods of their neighboring nations. Uh, they're a Lord of the dung is what they're calling them. So when these Pharisees say, well, he's doing this by the power of Beelzebul, I mean, that was a huge criticism to Christ. It was blasphemous. We're saying, oh, he's the Lord of the flies of the dumb. Well, you know, Jesus Christ, any time in the Gospels, when you see a miracle happen, people line up on different sides, and they take positions. And we do today. So if you go and you share 
the, the news that you believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God, son of David, sent from God, performs miracles, brings a kingdom, you're going to have similar reactions. You will. Some of the folks, and perhaps even today, and perhaps some of you even here now, you still have some doubts. I don't mind doubts. I think doubts are great, actually. I think most of us will have doubts all the way until we die. Doubts can be okay. They can move us into a position of investigation and further learning and further deepening our knowledge. The doubt that's dangerous is the settled doubt. It's the, I'm now committed to a non-committed position. That's how your soul feels. It's, that's contradictory. The settled doubt of agnosticism where, you know, we have an expression for agnostics. Agnosticism, A means no, gnosis means knowledge. So agnosticism is the person who says, I just don't know. And that's my position that I'm going to land on. And we say that they're like men and women who have their feet planted firmly in midair. It's a very unstable position to be committed to non-commitment. The contradiction is clear. Uh, so, so be investigative with your doubt, but, but don't be settled in your doubt. If you are doubting here, keep searching, keep hunting, keep pursuing, come forward, ask questions, press. Christianity has well handled its questions over the years. But there is also another reaction today that I think many of us face, and that's kind of a dismissal about Jesus and these miracles, and they say, you know what, you can't prove this stuff. We haven't seen it, we haven't participated in it, so you know what, I really don't believe it. But remember this, and C.S. Lewis makes this point really clear. He says, it's crazy to say I can't believe in a miracle because I don't see it. He goes, that's the nature of a miracle. You can't plan them, they're unique, they're unusual. To say that I can't believe it because I haven't seen it or they don't happen all the time, is to go contrary to the nature of a miracle. So if you dismiss miracles, if you dismiss this story out of hand, I would just be very cautious, recognizing that it's in the nature of these unique events that they're just that, unique. Now, some people, though, have a denial that moves to a kind of lovelessness. And you see it in the Pharisees, and you see it kind of even in a new atheism of the day, like a Sam Harris or a Christopher Hitchens, he's since passed away, and others that, that don't just disbelieve in Christianity, but they disbelieve with vitriol. In fact, they see it as offensive and problematic. And, um, and, and you can see that the disbelief has moved into a, a tremendous lovelessness. I would just ask you, where are you on these things? So when I read a story like that, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and Jesus, boom, just healed him. Now he can see, and now he can speak, and now he's free to worship God. What do you do with that? Do you believe in this kind of Christ? Do you believe that Jesus has this kind of power, bringing this kind of kingdom? Do you believe it, and do you belong to it? Is there evidence that you belong to this kingdom? In other words, is your faith bearing fruit of kingdom life? Is it something that, that you're still struggling with? Are you doing anything with it? So, so don't remain idle with these questions. You know, think them, answer them in your mind. Yes, I believe it, and I see the fruit. Well, praise God for that. Or, yes, I believe it, but I still have a lot of doubts. Well, then pursue those doubts. Come forward, ask questions, grab an elder, speak to someone in this church. Don't remain comfortable in the doubt. Pursue answers to it. If you have anger or bitterness towards it or you just don't believe it, I would still love to engage you in it. 
Okay, so that's the second thing. So the first thing is the kingdom of God comes to those who are broken. And I'm thankful for that because from Jesus' example, we're all in the shoes of this man. Secondly, God's kingdom will not always be received by all people. So when you share the gospel, the disbelief of others doesn't discount the truthfulness of the gospel. They have always disbelieved. They always will. Okay, the third thing is that this, this kingdom is coming with power to change. This kingdom is intended to change the world. Now, I'm going to explain this to you in verses 25 to 29. Okay, you see that last verse in 24, the Pharisees make a bold and blasphemous accusation. Look at how Jesus responds to them. I want you to see that Jesus doesn't fight fire with fire. He actually moves to them like a father, seeking to convince them and persuade them. Note the mercy of his attempts to convince them. He uses reason. Look at what he says in 25 and 26. They accuse him of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. So what does he say? Well, he shows the logic of it. He says, well, he says a kingdom or a city or a town divided against itself can't stand. I mean, right? I, I mean, if you have, um, if Satan is casting his own demons out of his kingdom, his kingdom will surely fall. I mean, don't we know the, the absurdity of this by our own observation? I mean, what good comes to a country that moves toward a civil war? What good comes to a family when the parents are always at odds? I mean, don't we know that something divided will be conquered? Does every six-year-old know this, really? The divide and conquer strategy? Well, Dad said I could. Your dad said what? Boom, a fire's been lit, and now his kid's going to get what he wants. Just admit it. I mean, the division and the conquer, it happens. We know that. So, so the illogic of it, Jesus tr tries to persuade them. Think of what you're saying. He is not just rebuking them to win an argument. He's trying to win them to the kingdom. But then secondly, he shows the inconsistency of it. Look in 27. In 27, he says, well, if I'm casting demons out by the prince of demons, then whom are your sons casting out? In other words, there were Pharisees that had ministries of exorcism. And they would, they would throw out demons of other Jewish people. And these Pharisees would rejoice over the claims of deliverance. He says, well, what gives? I mean, if, if they're casting out demons, are they using the prince of demons as well? Or why do you favor them and not favor me? So he's trying to show both the illogic and the inconsistency of their theological positions. But then he moves in 28 and 29 to show them how he's doing it, to show them the nature of his miracles. And he says, but if by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. So remember this with me from last week. If you remember, God gave the servant, and he gave the servant the Spirit. And the Spirit was to bring justice to the nations. Remember that? That was a prophecy from Isaiah, and it was given and spoken about Jesus. So Jesus is going to bring justice to the nations. And we said that justice to the nations was order. In other words, Jesus is going to roll back the disorder that Satan brought into this world. And so when Jesus says, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, you know the kingdom has come to you, he's saying, I'm the king of the kingdom. And I'm showing you that I'm the king of the kingdom because I'm reversing back. Here was a man oppressed. He's now free. He was blind. He can now see the glory of God. He was mute. Now he can speak about the glory of God. I'm rolling back the wickedness of darkness, that the kingdom of God has now landed firmly and 
is attacking the kingdom of Satan. So he's not in collusion with Satan, he's colliding with the kingdom of Satan. This is what he means, that he's bringing a stronger, a better kingdom. In fact, you see this in verse 29. He says, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Now, the implication is Jesus is saying that Satan is the strong man. Let's make very clear on that point. Jesus is implying Satan is a strong man. But Jesus is stronger because he can come into the castle of the strong man, he can bind the strong man up, and he can plunder his goods, i.e., pull men and women out of Satan's kingdom and bring them into the kingdom of his own. So, so this is a move. This, this is a, for us to understand, to walk away from this text, clearly Satan is given a measure of power and authority. Folks, C.S. Lewis, again, in his book, um, Screwtape Letters, he said to think of the devil in kind of a red tights, pitchfork, and a pointed tail is to, to do him much favor. To think of him in kind of cartoonish characters is to do him a great favor. I mean, he is the strong man. You go back to the book of Daniel, and you see the war between Michael and the the prince of Persia, this this angel of darkness over that area. 21 days he had to fight through to get to Daniel. There is serious and real power when you talk about the demonic world. You and I cannot see it with our physical eyes, But the scriptures all through speak very clearly of the nature of darkness as being true and real and threatening. I just want to make sure you balance it with the reality of the strength of Christ who can now come in and tie up the strong man and plunder his goods and just ravage his kingdom, pulling out all that he wants to pull out. Do you see this change? In other words, Jesus, in this third point, rolling back the kingdom, bringing order, those of us who are in the kingdom, the evidence for you is that there is increasing order to your life. Not order in a perfectionistic sense that you keep your closets clean, but in order in terms of the way you walk out your marriage, for example. That you have conflict in your marriage and there is repentance given. There is confession made in terms of your own sexuality, that there is a purity there. And when falls are had, you repent to God and ask for grace, maybe involve another person to help pray for you. In terms of finances, that you move away from consumer to steward, you see this increasing kingdom order in the way that you spend your money in the way you handle the workplace, that you're moving away from climbing up the ladder for my glory, and I'm moving towards a greater position of, I want to love my neighbor by using my gifts that God has given me for the benefit of those that I'm serving, whether it be a boss or customer. That there is an increasing orderliness in terms of a kingdom rightness that your life is beginning to take. That when you read through the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew, that you see more and more of that in your life. That would be evidence that you are belonging to this kingdom that Jesus Christ has brought. Now, I also want to remind you that those of you who are struggling, that that the Spirit of God is the one that brings about this work, that you're appealing to God for a spirit. I need help. I don't have order in this life. God, help me in this. Give me grace. We're appealing to God to, to find help. So if you're struggling with this and you say, well, I do believe in Jesus because 
being part of the kingdom is much more than a cognitive understanding of Christ, but there ought to be kingdom-like fruit being born in your world. So that's the third point. There is change wrought by the Spirit of God. The last point I think Jesus makes about the kingdom is this idea of the demands of the kingdom. He gives three warnings here, three warnings. And look with me at the first one. He says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. I mean, this is, um, this is a line in the sand. It really is. It's a clear, clear line in the sand. If you're not with me, you're against me. I, I mean, it's, um, there doesn't seem to be a neutrality with Jesus. There doesn't seem to be fence-sitting. There doesn't seem to be, I'm going to keep all my options open kind of thing with Christianity. There doesn't seem to be, in fact, the claims Jesus is ma- are making, the claims are so great that neutrality would be disbelief. Neutrality would be antagonism because the claims are so great. So, so if you see yourself, so you say, yeah, I think I'm in the kingdom, you're kind of assessing your soul right now. This is a clear division point. Now, I know we live in an age that's relativistic, and we live in an age that's tolerant. And so this kind of absolutist language is really anathema. We don't like it. We don't like to have it put to us in such stark measure. I don't want, you know, one or zero. I want something in the middle. Give me three options. That's what I want. I want some gray options available to me. But he doesn't give those to us. He doesn't lend. You know, I, I think, in fact, I would argue that a lot of people within Christendom kind of view their relationship with God to be more like, if I'm in the pack that isn't as bad, if I can find people that are worse than me, then I'm probably going to be okay. I'm probably not the best, no doubt about it, but as long as I'm not the worst, then I'm going to be okay with God. It's like the first time you go camping and someone says, listen, if you see a bear out there, you don't have to be the fastest, just be faster than the slowest guy. If you're faster than the slowest guy, you're good to go. Bear will get him, you're going to be fine. So you don't have to be the fastest. Don't even try to be, just be faster than the slowest guy. And I think that's the way we appeal to God sometimes. Like, well, I'm not as, you know, I'm not as bad as everybody else. And we often lean on that as justification that we have a decent relationship with God. Oh, yeah, yeah, there's people better than me, but you know what? I'm not as bad as these people. And Jesus doesn't seem to leave that option open. He says, if you're not with me, you're against me. These are hard words. Are you with him? And what would it look like if you were with him? Well, again, the evidence and the fruit of Christianity is, do you have a growing love for Jesus Christ? You know, a year ago, do you have a deepened love? And you say, well, that's hard to measure. And it is hard to measure. Love can be very abstract. Okay, so let me, let me make it more practical for you. Do you find yourself having a growing desire to learn from God through his word? Or is the word as dead to you as it was a year ago? Do you have a growing distaste for sin? That you, you will sin, but you don't want to sin. Do you have a, a, a growing desire to keep your conscience clear before God and man? That means that you are initiating repentance rather than people always having to come to you and say, hey, I was offended when you said this. You're revealing your life enough that you're saying, you know what, the way I said that could have really been taken the wrong way. I'm just going to initiate with them a point of confession. Do you have a longing to see Christ? I mean, even though you may be young, do you still not have this growing desire? What's it going to be like when we see the one who's created all things by his word? So, so you know, these are the marks. Are you for him or are you against him? 
I mean, I want you to scrutinize your life, to ask yourself. It's a warning to indicate whether we are part of the kingdom or not. But there's another warning given to us in 31 and 32. This is a warning against disbelief. Now remember, and this is, I'm going to nuance this a little bit. When I say disbelief, I don't mean, I'm not speaking to the atheist. I'm speaking to the one in the church. So look at 31 and 32. They're very confused verses. Um, in fact, these verses are often miscommunicated by pastors. I'm going to try not to do that. Uh, these verses are often misunderstood by churches. Please try not to do that. And, and we'll try to work our way and understand this, because this is the verse of the unpardonable sin. He says, therefore, I tell you, every sin of blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Okay, so let's just take this for a minute. Look at 31, the first half. I want to start with the good news. I love good news. So he says, therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. So before we look at the exception, let's look at the rule. The rule is that in Christ, for the Christian, every sin is forgiven. Is that not good news? Every sin? There aren't categories that are outside of his ability to forgive. He says every sin and blasphemy. So wherever you are right now, you may look at your history and you may just say, you have no idea what I did. Well, every is every. I mean, every is not kind of every. Every is every. Every sin and blasphemy is forgiven. By faith in Christ, his sacrificial death has far greater value than even the negative value that you have with whatever sin you're thinking he can't forgive. He says every sin will be forgiven you. So just rejoice on that. That's the big point here. Now, there is an exception. There is one that he says, blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. This is called the unpardonable sin, the unforgivable sin. What does it mean? What does it mean? Well, remember the context. So what we say is, in, when you interpret Scripture, you say context is king. You have to understand the passage in the context in which the thing is written. So he's speaking to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees had just, in verse 24, said what? He said, they attributed a work of God's Spirit to Satan. So blasphemy against the spirit. The word blasphemy means to slander the name or the character of the work of God. And so they're attributing to the devil what the spirit of God did. And so I would place before you, I'd submit to you that blasphemy against the spirit is taking a work of God, this, the, the spirit's prompting you to see the beauty of the gospel and you persistently reject the promptings of the Spirit. We know it's not a one-time sin because the tense of the verb indicates a persevering rejection of God's Spirit. So, so it, it's not a one-time, you made a mistake, you were really mad at God, you said some horrible things. He's not speaking about that. He's talking about a persistent rejection of the prompting of the Spirit leading you to see the glory of God. You see it and you apply it to darkness. So it has a very big impact, but on a small circle. So I would say this to you, because many people ask me, I think I've committed the unpardonable sin. They come in with serious anxiousness. And I found this to be true. The person that is most concerned with committing the unpardonable sin, I am least concerned that they have committed the unpardonable sin. Because if you're that concerned, you're repenting, you're appealing to God, you're asking for forgiveness, that's not what it's talking about. Because you know, Paul was a blasphemer. Paul did blaspheme against God, and he was forgiven. So we, we know that, that it's, the blaspheming is not 
unpardonable. In fact, he says in 1 Timothy 1.13, he says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ. So yes, blasphemers can be forgiven. This is speaking about the arrogant, not the anxious. The arrogant religious one that knows of the gospel and persistently rejects it and applies it to darkness. Uh, Cranfield was a, a, a deceased, uh, but a great exegete. He writes this. He says, it is not the ignorant blasphemer on the street who is in danger of committing the unforgivable sin, but the man or the woman in the church who knows the scriptures has heard the word held forth with accuracy, has seen something of the miraculous power of God in changed lives, and yet rejects it all, even identifying what he has seen with the power of Satan. He calls light darkness and good evil in testimony to the massive perversion of the spirit. The warning is particularly to those who have grown up in the church and may even have had some theological education but have willfully rejected it and in their heart of hearts attribute supposed Christian reality to evil. So, so I want to I make sure and put a very sharp pencil point on that so you don't fall anxious over something that probably doesn't apply to you. But if you're still concerned, if this is unclear, then please see me about it. I would love to speak to you further. So that's the second warning. Here's the third warning he gives us regarding the kingdom. The third warning is found in 33 to 37. I can't unpack all of it. But notice in 34, he is warning us of superficial religion. Look in 34, he says, You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So he's still speaking to the Pharisees. That's the context. And he's saying to them this, Why are you so ignorant that you think you can speak good things when your heart is evil? In other words, the only thing that you say is a product of what you believe. He's saying there's a direct connection that the mouth only speaks what the heart thinks. So if the heart is going to be evil, you're not going to be speaking great things. That's why he says, make the tree good and its fruit will be good. In other words, these Pharisees had been blasphemous. They had said, he's Beelzebul. I mean, he's doing this by the power of the demons. If they're saying such evil things, it's only because their hearts are so evil. And so what he's saying here to us about the nature of the kingdom is do not fall prey to superficial religion. You have a cognitive belief in the nature of God. You have a cognitive understanding about the, about the effect of Jesus and his cross in saving us from our sin. But he says the mouth is the key. Over your life, what is the content of your conversation? So if you're, because James says, out of the same spring can't come bitter water and fresh water. And so over time, you can scrutinize your own life. You can see what comes out. If out of your mouth comes unforgiveness, not always, not 100%, but over the course of a life, if it's unforgiveness and bitterness and anger and, and really lacking any intentional worship of God, if that's the, the balance of conversation, then it's indicating something about your heart. If out of your mouth comes in freer fashion, forgiveness, giving people the benefit of the doubt, acting in kindness, speaking with grace, building others up, 
speaking forth the excellencies of God to people. If those are coming out of your mouth over time, then it indicates the heart. So what is coming out of your mouth on a, as a general rule? Look in the relationships within your family, in the workplace. What is the bulk of conversation? If I were to weigh it, is it good or is it not good? Because he's saying that's how to discern the nature of your heart. That's why he says, by your words, you'll be justified. By your words, you're going to be condemned. In other words, if God were to line up every word that I've ever said and the content of the conversations I've had, where's the tipping point going to be? It's indicating the reality of either the rightness of my heart, that it's a good tree that's producing good fruit, or it's a bad tree producing bad fruit. This is an intimidating verse because we all have problems with our tongues. And so I think the, the responsibility for, for the, for the non-Christian here, putting on a mantle of religion will not change your heart. I mean, you can adapt all kinds of Christian principles. It won't change you. He says, make the tree good, and its fruit will be good. In other words, this is the call that I spoke of last week, which is to be born again, this idea that you cannot put a clothing of the gospel on. To be born again means your heart of stone has to be taken out and a heart of flesh has to be put on. And that heart of flesh, now God gives life to it so that your heart, that's how you make the tree good. So if you're a non-Christian here, then the way to move rightly is to seek God to forgive you of your sins, that you would ask him, give me new life. Take my heart of stone out. Give me a heart of flesh. Repent of your sins and ask for help from God. But for the Christian here, if you're weighing this and you're saying, yeah, I, I don't know how I'm weighing out. I don't have a scale. I'm, just, I'm struggling. I, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned. Well, then ask God, folks. You know, David in Psalm 51 says, create in me a clean heart. Pray that prayer. God, create in me a clean heart that what comes out of my mouth is more reflective of your glory than my own personal aspirations. Or he says in Psalm 86, give me an undivided heart. God, you know, so many of us have these divided hearts. I love this, I love this, I love this. Can you imagine if I did that in marriage? I love her, and I love her, and I love Carol, and I love her, and I love her. A divided heart is a destructive heart. God, give me an undivided heart. Let me love you fully and completely, knowing that he incrementally changes us. Or search me and try me. Know my heart. You know, ask him. So, so people, God wants to deal with us on a moment-by-moment basis. God wants to bring us to his glory, ready, excited. And he works moment-by-moment in us. So Jesus is speaking about this glorious kingdom. It's a kingdom to the weak and the disenfranchised. It's a kingdom that will not be accepted by everybody. Don't be surprised by that. It's a kingdom that's going to come with power and it's going to be incrementally change you. The Spirit of God can change you. And it's a kingdom that comes with demands and warnings. Do not compromise. See where you are on the position of neutrality. It's a kingdom that doesn't deal with disbelief. Remember, the, the unforgivable sin is among the religious, not the pagan. And then, and then also scrutinize of your life. Don't feel comfortable in superficial religion. So let me pray for us right now, and, and I'll open up just a brief time and I would ask you to speak uh, loudly and shortly, briefly. And um, this is a time where we're speaking to God on behalf of the church, reflecting on the text. So I'll open and Elder will close us in just, just one or two moments. Father, thank you for the word that you've given to us. Thank you for the Son that through whom we have all things, 
Particularly, we have the forgiveness of our sins and the transference to the kingdom of light. Father, would you apply these truths in our hearts in a way that, um, that first we'd know where we are with you and that you would advance us from glory to glory through your transforming spirit. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.